China. China. I deal with China. 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 Big league. China. So don't tell me about China. I know China. 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 Whether it's China, China. So if you went to China and you wanted to get a job in China, I don't know China. How could I dislike China? The man from China. Oh, China. Bullshit is real. China. Take China. 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 I love China. I can tell. I can tell. Welcome back to the bullshit filter. Uh, uh, China, China number four. Right. right. Yes. Five, four, four, and four and out. <laughs> what we're going to do? <laughs> Our last China episode. Uh, we just had some leftover notes right. from last time. Right. And quite frankly, we need to get into Biden. 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 Marsha. 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 Right. We're recording this on the 27th of February, 2019, in case you're wondering. I was. And what's blowing up at the moment, for those of you listening in the future, is Trump mm-hmm. and the telephone call to the president of the Ukraine about investigating Joe Biden's son mm-hmm. um, and Joe Biden on the periphery. So anyway, we'll, we'll probably talk about that yeah. on a new show next week. But for now, uh, we've got to talk about China. Now, uh, I want to I start with a clip. Ray. Please. How are you, Ray? Peachy Keen. How are you? Doing Just great. Any trees fallen on um, any of your motor vehicles uh, since we last spoke? Well, actually, a giant branch fell and landed where my car would normally be parked if it hadn't been already pre-struck by a tree and in the auto shop. So um, for those of you who are pray- praying for God or someone to strike me down, you're doing pretty good. You're doing pretty good. So, what the fuck? Anyway, other than that, I'm fine. How are you? I, I'm good uh, under massive amounts of uh, pressure right. to Perform. finish films oh, and right. books. Right. And to- <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's never a, <laughs> never a chance. Oh, I do want to shout out to uh, uh, our friend Mickey in Athens. Right. Remember Mickey yeah. in Athens came to hang out Hot. with us? Mickey. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and hauteur, <laughs> thanks to us, apparently. He sent me a... He sent me a message the other night basically saying, dude, I just want to thank you for all your podcasts. Because of your podcast, mm-hmm. I now go down on my wife more often. <laughs> I remember how much I enjoy it. And so she's happy. And it's when, all when? because of you guys. Right. When, when. Yeah. yeah. I showed Chrissy. I was like, see? See? <laughs> you talk about oral sex all the time, do you? And I go, yep. Yes, I do. Yes. It's so apropos. Yeah. 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 And it's not always uh, relating to Ray. Exactly. Not always. Anyway. Um, yes. Yeah. Under lots of stress to uh, not right. stress. Stre- see, the, here's the thing. Right. There's pressure, but no right. stress. I got gotcha. you. Stress is gotcha. when you handle pressure badly. I handle pressure like a fucking <laughs> black belt, man. <laughs> I got this. Yeah, it's, well, it's not that. It's just like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it when I fucking do it. Right. That's it. The stress doesn't I'll change do anything. Do. It doesn't change time. Uh, yeah. yeah. It doesn't. No. Yeah. I'm gonna do what I can do when I can do it. Right. If I can't do it by the way you want to do it, then I'm not doing it. Then you have to do whatever you want. Then you get a that. deal. 
I'm just, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're all going to deal. I'll do, you anyway, deal. Let me get to. Right. <laughs> or I won't do. And you'll you still, still get a deal. Cool deal. Right. I'm going to play a clip from Charlie Munger. Do you know who Charlie Munger is, Ray? I've heard the name. Who is he? Charlie Munger's a 95-year-old uh, white man, American, um, has been Warren Buffett's business partner in Berkshire Hathaway for wow. about, I don't know, 50 yeah, decades. years. Right. Since the 60s, I think. They don't exactly when, but they partnered up in sure. the 60s. Um uh, Tony Coniston's big fan of Charlie. I've heard Tony talk about Charlie for years. Never, I only just started recently listening to interviews, watching interviews with Charlie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Warren's sort of the face of Berkshire Hathaway, but Charlie's uh, been a big part of his success. And um, uh, he's this is so he's ninety five. He just did an interview recently, like a forty five minute television interview. Here's a clip from it. Uh, where he's talking about Jaina. And now they have one of the greatest success records in the history of mankind. I don't know about you, but I did not predict it. I didn't. <laughs> but, but what, so what is the secret to China's success then? They copied Singapore. Which is... Remember, the, the communist leader said, I don't care if the cat is black or white, I care whether it catches mice. And they copied a very wonderful, famous... Chinese man in Singapore, and lo and behold, they they found the right they found the right Chinese leadership outside of China, which amuses me. Now he was Chinese, but look at the way it worked. In the whole history of the world, no nation that big has ever advanced that fast, and they did it by having a bunch of poor people save half their income. They did not use the wealth of the rich world to get. Ahead, they they use the savings of poor people. I am a huge admirer of what the Chinese have accomplished. And I give, if you ask me who is the one man who did the most for China, it was Lin Kuan Yu, Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore. They copied him. Are you still sanguine about the future for China right now? There's a lot of concerns about slowing growth and leverage in the system. I'm quite optimistic. They've been succeeding for a long time. Sure, they have ups and downs, and they make mistakes as well as good decisions. But if you average them out, the Chinese are getting ahead. They're not moving backward. What do you think the economic relationship between China and the United States looks like, say, two years from now? Well, if both sides have any sense, they will be better and better friends and adjust all differences. It is start raving madness on either side not to make a friend of the other really powerful nation on earth. Uh, Charlie Mungus saying that uh, they learned everything from Lee Kuan Yew. Mm-hmm. Um, did you come up with uh, that anywhere in your deep, deep, <clears throat> intensive research, Ray? Um, shock, gasp, no, I did not. Can you tell me about him? Oh, about you, about Lee Kuan Yew. Well, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on Lee Kuan Yew. He passed away a few years ago, I mm-hmm. think. Um, you know, uh, was was sort of the dictator of um, Singapore for many many decades. He right. was the uh, 
Prime Minister from 1965 to 1990. They got their independence around 1965. Mm. Uh, he was the Prime Minister for decades. Uh, then he became a Senior Minister from 1990 to 2004, sort of handed over the Prime Ministership to Go Chok Tong. Um, then he can he continued on as sort of like a statesman, senior statesman right. in there um, until he retired in 2011, died in 2013. Um, obviously built a tremendously strong economy there, uh, very sort of brutal in terms of it being a mm-hmm. police state. They had corporal punishment, caning, chop your hands off if you're caught stealing Ooh. stuff. Very, uh, sort of very, very strict. Authoritarian government combined with, uh, you know, sort of a, a pretty um, uh, free market, but uh, yeah, it did very well economically. And I'm not exactly sure. Nothing that I've read so far has suggested that the Chinese learnt from Lee Kuan Yew, but uh, it's possible. Hadn't something I hadn't thought about before. Right. Uh, I did like Charlie's Charlie Munger's mention of. Uh, I think it was a Deng Xiaoping saying, doesn't matter whether the cat is black or <laughs> right. white, what matters is that it catches mice. That is all that matters. Um, yeah. 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 And, and if I could just... By the way, I've been... Re- yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I, just want, I just wanted to say real quick, the very last, one of the very last things that Charlie Munger said there, and if you think about it, I mean, this. You, sometimes you have to hear it from someone else. Um, the idea that we would not try to strive to be maybe not allies, but friends with the next most powerful nation and now the nation with the largest economy in the world. Why would you not try to have a good, solid relationship? Why does it automatically have to be antagonistic? Is it because they're trying to take the number one spot from us because they have taken the number one spot? Why does it have to be uh, confrontational? adversarial, why can't we go, you know what, if you and I could get along, fuck, we could rule the world. I mean, this would be great. But I don't know if it's part of the American psyche or culture that we can't share the number one spot. And again, that might sound obvious, but sometimes you just need someone to say, going, yeah, why aren't we getting along? I, I get why we weren't getting along with Russia during the Cold War, but this is different. Why aren't we trying better with China? Well, I look, I don't know the answer to that question, but my guess is no no nation that's number one economically and militarily uh, wants to be number two. Right. And it, it's not like uh, being the number one Hollywood box office star and number two. It's not like, okay, well, maybe I'm not Tom Cruise, but I'm The Rock. Right. Well, maybe it's the other way around these days. <laughs> I think The Rock... <laughs> I think so. The Rock's, yeah. Rock's goal is to be in every movie that gets made, and he's right. in 90% of them, so he's doing all right. <laughs> uh, whatever it is, like, th- it's not that, okay, well, they're number one, we're number two, but we're still doing okay. As as we've sort of seen, the m- major economic advantages the US derives and has derived since the end of World War II for having its dollar, the global standard reserve currency mm-hmm. if that if it's replaced by the yuan then it, it it could totally fuck up as i understand it the u.s economy right it's, this is a this is a major major thing if china can really supplant the u.s 
And to me, it's not a question of if, it's a question right. of when. when. Uh, yeah. And obviously, if American strategists feel the same way about that, and I say that just because of the size of China's population oh, and sure. uh, the, the, the progress that they're making, assuming that uh, Charlie Munger is right. Charlie Munger, by the way, is a billionaire uh, and and has been for a long time. Don't know what his net worth is, but like what like Warren and these guys, he's uh, worth uh, billions. Net worth, oh, only one point eight billion here. So oh. I don't know. he's he's low low on the total. Respectable, hold. Much. but right. What, I mean, if I have to be somebody, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, look personally, I remember when one point eight billion would have felt like a lot of money to me. Uh, no. Then. You, you started driving a Mercedes, and I was like, oh, okay. We've, we've moved up to a whole new level now. Anyway. You're still emailing me going, hey, any chance you could pay me early this month? But, uh, I'm like, fuck, no. What, are you just going to go buy another Mercedes? No, fuck car. off. I got to buy a car. No, not near trees, though. I need to live in um, Colorado someplace oh, so there's no trees. Ride a horse, motherfucker. Oh, that's a good idea. You live in, you live in the country. That's a good anyway, idea. Uh, yeah. if Charlie Munger's right and right. you know China keeps doing well, then they are going to totally supplant the US, not right. just as the world's largest economy, which they are already, but as the reserve currency. And that's what I want to talk about today. So from what I've read, long-term, China's goal, as far as people can guess, is to replace the US dollar with the yuan. Uh, by the way, do you know the difference between the yuan and the renminbi? No, please tell me. Well, uh, my understanding is that uh, the renminbi mm-hmm. uh, is renminbi, ren, ren, I'm not exactly sure how, I did look it up, I can't remember, renminbi. Right. Um, is is the name of the, the official name of Chinese uh, currency, the renminbi. Uh, have I got a listen listen to this? I like it in Wikipedia when they have a like. Oh, here it is. Renminbi. Renminbi. Okay, okay. Like it can be Right. Uh, it's the name of the currency, but the yuan is the is the the you know the equivalent of a dollar. Ah. And so sometimes it, it just gets called the yuan, but anyway, the official name is the Renminbi. Um, anywho, uh, I'm just going to keep calling it the yuan I would. for. The sake of not having to remember how to pronounce it. Uh, they want to replace the US dollar as the world's global currency. Right. And so one concern that Americans have, I think, right now, apart from just uh, the, the size of the economy and what they're going to do with it, is that China might weaponize mm-hmm. its $1.1 trillion worth of US treasuries yes. that we spoke about last time mm-hmm. that it's sitting on. This is referred to uh, in the uh, financial press as the nuclear God. option. Right. Jesus. I remember mm-hmm. back in the good old days when the nuclear option was actually nuclears. Right. Dropping nuclear bombs. Now it's just, yeah. Now <laughs> it's bills. just uh, yeah. crashing the U.S. economy. Um, did you get your head around what the nuclear option involves? Well, I, I, yes, uh, to a degree. Um, I found it interesting. I, I took your advice 
And I purposefully listened to different um, commentators who would be coming at this from different places, um, Fox News, CNN, BBC, that kind of stuff. And what most of them were saying, um, the the bulk of uh, commentators, experts supposedly in the field, were saying that it's fun to talk about because it's it's like an intellectual puzzle, but it's something that's never going to happen. And their justification is it's a two-way destruction. It would be to such a degree both both economies would be wrecked. The United States, um, the cost of borrowing would go up um, after the Chinese floods the market with U.S. debt. The United States would have to raise its interest rates so high that it would ruin our ability to issue cheap debt. Um, at the end of the situation, um, everything that we borrow for, that we get from the market, we wouldn't be using to finance the economy. It would pretty much just be paying interest on the debt, which would obviously be crazy. And the other part is that is if China does anything with some or all or most or whatever of its $1.1 or $1.3 trillion of debt, there's still another $21 trillion out there owned by other countries. And if they start selling off as well, obviously that's that's nuclear times 10 or whatever. So the dollar falls to the floor. Raw materials and finished products cost a lot more. But again, China's shooting itself in the foot because the Americans can't afford to buy their products. Their currency drops as well. So because it's basically mutual destruction, it's never going to happen. Unless, if you think about it, to, and, and there was this one commentator who, who stepped outside of everybody, and he goes, well, it's crazy. It, it, the situation is crazy to think about at the moment. But he says this. So for right now, we don't have to worry about it because both countries would destroy each other. But the Chinese can't match Donald Trump every time he raises the tariffs. Dollar for dollar, China can't, can't match us when it comes to raising tariffs. So if Donald Trump keeps going up with his tariffs and the Chinese go as far as they can and then have to stop at some point and Donald Trump keeps going, the nuclear option suddenly doesn't look so crazy over time. It looks like something that actually might be the silver bullet to save China from all these tariffs that Donald Trump is saving, so uh, that he keeps raising. So it is possible. It's just possible under different circumstances. And then everybody around the table from him are like, oh, fuck, because they truly realize what would happen to both economies. But again, the situation would have to change, but it could be possible in the future. What's your take on that? Yeah, I like, I like this theory that, um, well, it would never happen because it would destroy both countries. That's That was true with actual nuclear weapons, <laughs> but it didn't stop. Right. It didn't Good stop point. the U.S. and the Soviet Union from, you know, running a cold war, building yeah. up thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons yeah. over the course of the late twentieth century. Um, so it's not a yeah, real. Yeah, I think I said. Go ahead. I think I said on the last episode, like yes, uh, this would collapse both economies, but. Who could survive that better is the question in my right. mind. As I said, I think last time, if if Xi Jinping was to is to go nuclear, he can turn to his people and say, "Well, a you don't have any democracy, right. so Shut what the fuck, fuck are you going to do about <laughs> exactly. it?" Exactly. Yeah. Well, you, sorry to be clear, they do have democracy. I keep having to point out to people that these single party states do have democracy it may not be the kind of democracy that we are familiar with right, right in in the western world because it's a single party state but they do vote inside of that single party for leadership 
still elections. Uh, and just yeah. the fact that it's the fact that it's not the kind of democracy that we recognise doesn't mean that our democracy is right and their democracy is wrong. I mean, uh, Australia's democracy form of democracy is different from America's. America's form of democracy is different from the one that we had in the Roman Republic, which was different from the one that was in Athens. Democracy comes in many forms. Right. right? Like, in the like, eye of the beholder. Like penises. Right. Like penises. <laughs> I was going to go with beauty, but that's fine. Yeah. Penises. Let's go with penises. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they come in many different forms, right? And you can't say, well, they don't have democracy. <laughs> well, they do. It's just... It's bigger. It's, it's different. It's, it's, yeah, it's a 12-inch democracy <laughs> versus your three-inch. I'd be happy with three inches, honestly. Uh, okay. I can't believe I'm saying this, but if you can move off my penis, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is the nuclear option. It would right. slow down the economy, but again, Xi Jinping could say to China, the Chinese, well, listen, you know, yeah, we're going to have to tighten our belts for a while, um, right. but we will come through this better than America. America's already ready to tear itself apart. Um, yeah. I think if I'm if I'm Vladimir Putin, if I'm Xi Jinping, if I'm one of these countries that's looking to knock the United States down a couple of pegs, I'm just I'm throwing petrol on the flames, man. It's already on fire. You're already at each other's throats. It's it's a bit. It's America is basically the Thunderdome right now. Yeah. Um, you're not far off basically wearing skins, uh, jumping in the arena with uh, a, a, a net in one hand and a trident right. in the other hand. That's how I'm going to fight. And just hacking at it. That's <laughs> hacking at each other. It's, right. it's that's the the level of <laughs> the level of democracy you have over there now. If, like if if China were to just. Uh, Throw a couple of you know things of petrol on that, right? By crashing the economy, uh, you know, you, you guys will wipe yourselves out. You go back to the Stone Age. China's the last man standing. Yeah, if if I can add on, and to... they're used to being right. sorry, and they're used to being poor, right? As yes. I said last time, they're used to being poor. They, they can you, handle it. Amer- well, the, there's a lot of poor people in America, but the uh, you know the the middle class, the elite, uh, right. uh, the upper class in the Pretty United cozy. States, the ruling classes, yeah would not know how to deal with it. The Chinese would be like, yeah, well, yeah. You know, go back to the garden. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. problem. Well, if I can, if I can add on to that, I mean, history has shown us that you can either conquer a peoples or you can get them to tell the, tear themselves apart. And you're absolutely right. They're so, we are so divided in America politically, you know, you've got abortion, you've got gun rights, you've got race. We're, you know, we're at each other's throats, um, sometimes, literally. But yeah, the only thing that kind of keeps things in check is that the vast majority of people have jobs. They can buy their cell phones. They can they can go out to see a football game or a movie, or whatever. If you wreck the economy of America, I mean, I, I I really get the sense that that would be just enough so we'd really turn on each other. Uh, who knows? But the point is, yeah, so if these other countries really wanted to mess with us, we're doing a good job of, of being mean to each other already, but take away our creature comforts because the economy has crashed, and you'd see something really ugly after that. Anyway, look, I... I I I agree that it's probably unlikely that it's going to happen, but it's a card that the bottom line, I guess, is that China has it in their pocket. They have nuclear right. weapons and they have this nuclear weapon. 
And uh, I mean, America can't yeah, really here. afford to not take yeah. it seriously. Absolutely. Now, one of the things I try to get my head around preparing for this show is how owning US Treasury notes helps China's economy grow. Mm. I heard a lot about this. Uh, so there's a number of reasons why China invests in US Treasuries. As we've explained in earlier shows, uh, when China sells something to the United States, it gets paid in US dollars and needs to do something with those US dollars. So what it does is it turns around and it buys US Treasury notes. Mm. And apparently by doing that, they're able to keep the yuan Weak right. relative to the dollar, right? Because which is important. Why do they want to do that, right? Well, as far as I understand it, yeah, they take the money and they buy the treasury bills, which keeps the value of the dollar up, and so the yuan is comparatively weak. But the reason the reason you want to do that is because when you have your exports, when China basically exports so much to the rest of the world, it keeps their items competitive because they're they come in even after being loaded onto a ship sent across the Pacific Ocean and landed somewhere in America, maybe even in a, in a truck and then all the way to D.C., or Walmart in D.C., because the yuan is so much uh, lower than the dollar, it still can come in and be put on that shelf in that Walmart store at a competitively low price. So they can ship the stuff over, and, and Americans are like everybody else. If I go up there and there's two identical or similar products, and one's made in the U.S. and one's made in China, and one of them is like two dollars or three dollars more expensive than the other one, patriotism is nice, but patriotism be damned. I got a family; they're going to buy the cheaper one. So it makes their exports competitive. And there's also Chinese tax laws that helps keep other currencies strong in their country. And so again, the yuan is weak, weaker comparatively. So. This is not evil. This is not bad. These are just the games, the rules that everybody plays by. And China is just very good at it. And so they have a weak uh, currency and it helps with their exports. And that's how they have all these jobs and make and make all this money. They keep the yuan relatively weak to the dollar mm-hmm. because it helps export. It also it helps keep their labor costs in. Now, their, their, their labor costs have gone up right. uh, massively over the last five to ten years, uh, as to be expected in a developing country. People who would have worked for a dollar an hour ten years ago now want five dollars an hour. Still cheaper than the the what do Americans get paid, you're... Your, your minimum wage is like six dollars twenty five or something an hour. Seven twenty five, something like that. I honestly don't know. Right, Chinese are going to be getting paid more than Americans soon. They're going to be they're going to be they're going to be hiring Americans to come over and work as their uh, you know gardeners. Right. America, right. Americans will be to China what Mexicans <laughs> have been to Americans. They'll be calling Americans wetbacks and uh, bringing them over to work the work the fields. Oh my god! Um, Bang in the dark. But their yeah. their highest priority, I read, right. China's highest priority right now is is creating enough jobs for their one one point four billion people. Right. So they need to keep they need to keep the yuan low, so Americans and Australians and other countries will keep getting their stuff manufactured there. Uh, so the cost of producing there is cheap, and then they're able to export it cheaply right. as well. 
But there's also the risk of China starting a currency war with the US. Mm. Now, this is different to the nuclear option of dumping the treasuries. This is where China would significantly decrease the value of the yuan relative to the greenback. Okay. They can do that. So most countries uh, have floated their dollar, their currency. So the value of it, like the Australian dollar is floated. The value of it is determined by the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, People look at the strength of the Australian economy relative to the strength of other economies. And based on that, they buy Australian currency and that pushes the value of it up, etc. Uh, China uh, sets its own exchange rate. Mm. Um, I've heard that they peg it to a basket of other currencies, usually. It's how it's described in the financial press. So basically, they look at a bunch of other currencies and how they're, where they're at, and then they kind of set the yuan relative to the dollar at a certain rate. Now... Mm. Normally, it's around about 6.25 yuan to the US dollar. Okay. But recently, they've started weakening it. It's gone down to 7 and to 7.15 yuan right. per USD. Now, I said go down, um, but that that's uh, uh, going up. Right, right, right. You get me? Which is weak and not strong. It takes more yuan to match the dollar. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. So uh, the reason this is a scary thing for the US if they do this is because it makes their exports even cheaper still if they start mm. to play with their currency. So this is one of the things that China uh, that so Trump has uh, been complaining about that they're. Uh, uh, manipulating the value of their currency, which is making their economy more attractive, making them stronger, and that's bad because, well, it just is bad. So that's part of his excuse for putting tariffs on Chinese imports. So he puts he puts right. more tariffs on the Chinese imports into the US, so China lowers the value of its dollar and puts tariffs on the US products and then it's just been this tit for tat going on. But so the two the two key things I wanted to just finish up with here, are the, mm-hmm. the the understanding this nuclear option, which is basically dumping all of their debt or large chunks of their debt, and right. a currency war, which is significantly devaluing their uh, uh, currency compared to the U.S to give their economy a, a, a big kick in the pants, which they can do if they decide to. Can I, I just want to add something to the nuclear um, option element. I, there was this one uh, economist who I wasn't even going to mention because his his reaction or his, his, his hypothesis was so insane. Uh, but now I'm sitting here thinking about it. So his, his, his idea was this. Let's say that China dumps a bunch of their T-bills and all those horrible things happen um, that, you know, we, we're sitting here predicting it's going to happen as, as far as the U.S. economy, interest rate, uh, the economy dries up, people are buying stuff, and, you know, jobs are lost. This one guy was saying that, um, well, they can sell all they want because the way it works is those things are still only due at a certain time. It's not like we suddenly have to shell out a bunch of money because they sold them. They sold them to someone else who bought them for a little a little cheaper. Um, 
than they than they bought them for. And this was almost like the the arguments we heard when we were talking about the uh, the vaccines. Uh, this guy was spinning his own argument to try to make a very subtle point that missed missed the target completely. So he's like, if they sell everything, we'll still wait until they're due because that's what you do when it, when you have a T bill, you wait until it matures or whatever the time. Uh, references, and then you pay it off. And if we have to, we'll print out more money to pay it off. Yes, it's going to get ugly, and we might not be able to do more in the future because we'll have trouble generating more T-bills because people can get them cheaper now because the Chinese are selling them off. And so he thought he was rationally saying this is not a big deal as as people are trying to make it out to be. But I think the point that you and I have been making is that besides all the real-world consequences of them selling these things short, um, it's going to start a psychological warfare between it's like, oh, you know, they've lost confidence in America and maybe other people will lose confidence in America as well. And even though I don't even pretend to understand the whole psychological aspect of economics, it is a very real thing, just like, you know, a fake run on a bank can become a very real thing. And so there's there's other weapon there's other ways to hurt America besides just shorting these things and then you know having America raise their interest rates to cover things so so I think it's a much bigger deal than what people think it is and this I think this guy who was an economist missed the boat completely, but I think he was trying to support Trump with his trade war but again it's like like it's like you said I have this massive giant sword chances are I'm never going to use it because if I pull it out and start swinging I'll end up killing a lot more people than just you. But I just want you to know that I have it. I'm reminding you that I have it. And sometimes that just that reminder can be a weapon as well. You're just like the Americans dangling the bomb in front of Stalin in the late 40s. Exactly. So, hey, you're not going to use it, but we got but it. we might. We're, don't make but, me want to. But we're not. We might. We, but we're not. We don't want but to. But we could. We don't want to. But we're not. Ru- but I we, rue the day. Yeah. That, but, but I but got it. And you don't. So go back to right. this economist statement about... It not being a problem mm-hmm. if China dumps their treasury bill. So explain why he's wrong or why you disagree with him. He, he, well, he was he was trying to dodge the issue because what he was saying is that, okay, let's say they set, they sell, and I'm just going to pick a number, um, $1 billion worth, I have no idea, $1 billion worth of T-bills or whatever. Like you said, they could sell them to someone for $0.85 cents on the dollar, you know, that kind of stuff. So they're going to snatch them up because they're going to get a good deal. His argument was, well, it's not like America suddenly has to put out money to cover those T-bills right then and there. When they mature, we will then pay whoever owns them because uh, that's the way it works. And if we have to, we'll just print out more money because we can to cover them. So, again, it's like he was taking one little tiny... Yeah, but tell me why he's wrong. I I understand what he's saying. Tell me why he's wrong. Because even if we print out more money to cover that when they are mature, which when they are due, which is totally correct, but the point is it could cause a landslide. It could make it harder for us to sell T-bills in the future when people can get them cheaper from China. Why would you pay the normal price? And then suddenly we can't generate more money to cover the debt because you were the one who said last time... We this is this is not a very smart situation for the United States to be in. We keep generating, we keep selling T bills for the future to cover the debt now, and then when the debt becomes due later, we just print out more money, and so it it could disrupt the entire cycle that we're on. So let me let me let me yeah. see if I can break it down again. Not an expert, mm-hmm. but here's what I think: it's 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 the risk isn't. What happens when the bill becomes due? The risk is what it means right right now if they do that. So 
Let's say right now uh, Treasury bills, uh, the, the U.S. is printing money. It's uh, selling that off as Treasury bills. Um, mm-hmm. And in order to get people to buy that bill, they have to promise, the U.S. has to promise, the, the, the Treasury has to promise to pay interest on it. So they say, okay, well, because basically what you're doing is you're loaning the government uh, your money in return for their money, right? So right. You're, you're, you're buying the Treasury bill and uh, they're going to pay you 3%, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, 3% per annum. So that's kind of setting the default interest rate is the Treasury bill's rate. Because you can, right. go, and, you can go and give the government your money to buy the Treasury bill and they will pay you 3%. Um, So it's not really printing money, is they're borrowing money and then putting that back out into the market. So that sets the interest rate. You can get 3% for your money. If if China already owns treasury bills that are going to pay 3%, but they dump them, people aren't going to go to the treasury tomorrow to get 3% because they can get it cheaper by buying China's bonds. Okay, so then the Treasury's got a problem. How, do, how does the Treasury get money now? It, right, that's what I was trying to... Yeah, yeah. How does the Treasury... Because they can get it from China. Well, the, the market can get it from China, yeah. So Right, that's what I meant. Yeah. How, does, how does the Treasury get money? Well, they're going to have to make the Treasury bills more attractive. How do they right. do that? They have to put up interest rates. Right. So they start, they go, okay, well, what if we gave you 5%? Mm, no, it's still not good enough. If right. China's, dump, get it from China. China's, yeah. China's dumping it. So interest rates go up. So this is the, I think this is the short-term risk of China dumping the treasury bills, is it, it immediately, not down the track when the bills are due, right. it immediately puts up interest rates because the treasury keeps... In, having to sell treasury bills to get money to fund its operations. Um, unless it da- you know, they, they can also print money, as we talked about earlier, and then buy it back and do this quantitative easing stuff. But you know, one of the mainstay mechanisms to get money to cover the budget deficit is mm-hmm. treasury bills. And if, if China dumps their bills, the treasury needs to put their interest rates up, which means interest rates go up across the board in the United States – which means it's more expensive for people to Everything. borrow money to buy a, a house or, or a car. Yes. It means it's more expensive for businesses to borrow money to fund their operations, which means they, you know, they, they, they don't expand, which means they don't employ people or they let people off. It means pay rises don't get paid or salaries don't go up, which they're not going up anyway in the US. But it, it, it means a, a slowing down of the economy, basically. When interest rates go up, the economy slows down, at least theoretically. But the US right. is running on close to 0% interest rates at the moment and has been for quite a yes. while, which is bizarre. But uh, yes. that's how you bought a Mercedes. But, you just went and borrowed a ton of money. <laughs> yeah, it came to well, the zero interest rates. Woo! <laughs> well, here's the other part. Of China, to, to baby! Continue on your, Sorry, what? To, to continue on with your, with your narrative there... 
okay, so we raise interest rates or whatever. We're having to offer better deals on the thing, but but whatever. But China or some other country then jumps in and they keep selling these. So these are still attractive things. So again, not everybody's going to go to the government, the, the uh, Washington, and buy those, even if they are at 5%. Because now maybe you're a little worried, but you know you can get them from China and they're going to they're gonna short them. So you're still going to get a great deal. So yeah, it, it just creates this entire thing that could build momentum and keep going. And so, again, it's, it's a nuclear option that probably will never happen. But under the cir- circum- right circumstances that history shows, anything is possible. All right. I want to move on to talk about the uh, complaints that Trump has that China steals American IP. Mm-hmm. Now, as I think I've said before, slightly hypocritical because uh, the U.S. built its entire economy on slavery, genocide and theft – Right. But as we know, was that, was, that, right. that was okay then. Right. Sorry, uh, the the window of opportunity has yeah. closed on the ability yeah. to build your economy. On to we fu- didn't just steal, you know, we didn't just steal IP, motherfucker. We stole people, <laughs> millions of people. We stole. I just stealing IP. I uh, did. <laughs> I stole human, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, but even today, America steals the IP of other countries. And the one that I'm most familiar with is the Cohiba. Now, mm. uh, Cohiba... The cigar? people who don't know, no. is... Uh, no. Yes, a cigar, Cohiba. <laughs> right. it, uh, the no. word Cohiba uh, comes from the indigenous Caribbean word for tobacco. Oh, Okay. Now, General Cigar, an American company, manufactures and distributes cigars in the United States using the Cohiba trademark, its intellectual property. Right. It owns two trademark registrations for Cohiba in the United States. The only problem is Cuba Tobacco also manufactures and distributes cigars using the same Cohiba trademark and has been doing it well before General Cigar. Right. The Cohiba cigar was originally made for Fidel Castro. Here's how Fidel recalled the story in 1994. Should I do a Cuban? Uh, what's my Cuban accent? Do I have a Cuban accent? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I basically I get the Tony Montana. There you and, go. Uh, just uh, how can I go wrong? I, <laughs> Say hello to my Okay. I used to see the man smoking a very aromatic, very nice cigar. And I asked him, what brand was he smoking? He told me that it was a special blend, that it came from a friend who makes cigar, and he gave them to him. I said, so this is not what Castro sounded like. Castro had this. High. Very, yeah, very high-pitched voice. Yeah. I tried this again. <laughs> No, don't, please. (laughs) All right, now just get back to me. Yeah. Uh, uh, I said, let's find this man. I tried the cigar and found it so good that we got in touch with him and asked him how he made it. Then we set up the house, the El Laguito factory, and he explained the blend of tobacco that he used. He told which leaves he used and from which tobacco plantations. He also told us about the wrappers he used and other things. We found a group of cigar makers. We gave them the material, and that is how the factory was founded. Now Cohiba is known all over the world. Wow. 
So Fidel Castro basically invented the code. Well, this guy invented it. Castro, you know, he did a Steve Jobs. He, yeah. he, he saw it and goes, hey, we're going to commercialize this. Right. We're going to take this, take it huge. But under the US embargo, right. Cuban tobacco is prohibited from mm-hmm. selling its cigars in the United States. And not only that, the Cubans have tried for decades yeah. To get the United States to stop General Cigar from infringing on its copyright. But nothing has happened. Wow. So, Stop. fucking hypocrites. Like, right. uh, you know, China will respect your IP when you respect <laughs> Cuba's IP. <laughs> okay. Good luck with that. Don't hold your breath. Yeah. yeah. So, I want to give some background. So, in 1980... Uh, just after Xin Jinping mm-hmm. uh, took over, China became a member of the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO. Right. Mm. And China has laws in place to protect IP, but Americans complain that the laws aren't enforced hard enough. Right. To which I say, fine, stop doing business with China then. And they go, yeah. well, we can't do that. And I'm like, well, shut it's the fuck appealing. up. It's too free Right. It's a free world. Right. The free world to give Cuba back its trade. Go somewhere else. Yeah. Apple could stop manufacturing its products in China. If, if, like, if you don't like their, their copyright laws, stop doing business with them. I mean, no one's holding a gun to your head. Right. Stop doing it. You yeah. do it because you're willing to pay the price. But that said, Apple could stop manufacturing its products in China. Goldman Sachs issued a report in 2018 that said if Apple relocated all of its production and assembly to the US, its product costs would increase by... 37%. But honestly, yeah. who would who would care? Like you're paying like $12,000 for an iPhone now. <laughs> Apple said, oh, it's now $15,000. Everyone would go, yeah, I, I got to have it. I got to have it. Yeah, I got to have My, my neighbor's it. got it. I got to fucking have it. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Um, but that said, a recent survey by the American Chamber of Commerce mm-hmm. showed that 90% of its members think China is making good progress on IP protection. Is it perfect? Yes. No, but they're making progress. I read a book by a guy called Yukon Huang, who's a senior yes, fellow yeah. with the Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It's a think tank based in Washington, D.C. He previously served as the World Bank's country director for China from 1997 to 2004. Wow. Uh, he wrote this book called Cracking the China Conundrum, Why Conventional Economic Wisdom is Wrong. And uh, I read that. That was fascinating. And then in a recent mm-hmm. interview, he said, look, even though China's IP protection isn't as strong as those in some developed countries, it's actually improving quite a lot. And the, he said part of what's changing yes. this now is that Chinese companies are starting to make, come up with a lot of patents so as they're issuing patents, they have more incentive to exactly. uh, uh, respect the patents of others. And yeah. so they're putting a lot of additional laws into place to protect IP theft. Uh, you yeah. want to jump into your notes if I haven't already spoken well, over the top of them? Yeah, yeah. No, that was a lot of it right there. Well, first of all, this guy was telling me, he's like, okay, first of all, don't be surprised by this, but the Chinese think of this entire situation differently than the Americans do. They look at it differently. It's like playing chess with someone and about halfway through the game, you turn the board around and you're like, 
oh, you're looking at it from their point of view. It looks completely different. It makes you think differently. And what, and just like you second, said a second ago, he was saying, you know, because China has so many more people and because they are so industrious and because they are, they are working on technology and research and development, that there are more patents uh, pending in China than there are in the United States. And so actually what the big problem for the Chinese are is that the Chinese companies are stealing intellectual property from other Chinese companies more than they are stealing them from Americans. And so you're right, the rules, the laws protecting foreign IP has improved a lot in China over the years. Now, you're not going to hear that. You're certainly not going to hear that on Fox News, and you're probably not going to hear that in a lot of uh, places because it doesn't really fit the narrative, and it's not as sexy to, to see them as a threat. China is having trouble with with fellow Chinese people stealing from the, from the country, from each other. So that's their big focus right now. The other part of it was there's a lot of Americans, even when they go in there with their very expensive lawyers, they don't really understand all the processes and all the things they have to do. So if they set up their company, they probably didn't look through the paperwork very well. Or when they do go to sue someone who supposedly takes um, intellectual property, they're not doing a very good job because even though there's better laws on the books, they really don't know the culture that well as far as pursuing um, any kind of litigation. So again, the official line is, like you were saying, it's gotten a lot better for foreign companies. And China itself, amongst themselves, is almost like the Wild West. They're just stealing from each other. But the point is, everybody should know that it's getting better. But here's, here's, here's the flip side of all this. And again, I thought this was interesting, because there was this one guy that said, when Trump started this trade war... He had no idea what he was talking about. He has no idea how all these different parts are connected and how they move. He had no clear goal, and he had no way of knowing how to make his goals, if he had set goals, um, actually approachable. So this guy, he's basically saying Trump just kind of jump, jumps in and starts swinging. He has no idea what he's doing. So here's here's one one example of what he gave. Back in April of this year, the yuan fell again, and Trump was all over it complaining that China was uh, manipulating their currency. But here's the problem with that. Whether it's the Chinese government doing it or its economic forces, because it does go up and down, just like all the other currencies, when that happens... Chinese products become cheaper, and so Americans, of course, and, and people all over the world are going to buy them. But because those products are cheap or they stay cheaper, sometimes they get down and they're even a little cheaper. American manufacturers can't come along and try to take their market share. They can't create these jobs because they can't, like you were saying a second ago, put the same product on the shelf next to the Chinese product at a similar price. It's just not going to happen for, for many different reasons, all the costs that go into doing business in America. So so Trump doesn't even seem to, to get that um, the connection between that. So here he's promising all these jobs are going to rush back to America. We're going to bring back coal. We're going to bring back all these jobs. We're going to bring back manufacturing. And if you talk to any economist, they'll say none of those will ever happen. But a part of this is the more pressure you put on China, if they do need to lower the yuan, they're going to do it and it's going to keep the products cheap and so no American can open up his own toy factory because he can't compete with Chinese products. Trump doesn't get that and so he just goes along making these outrageous statements and raising more tariffs and the cycle just goes on and on and on and no one can see a good ending for either side. You know, I think really at the end of the day what Trump wants to get out of all of this is mm -hmm. a Trump Hotel in Beijing. That's just give it to him. Give it to yeah. him. One in Moscow, one in Beijing. Fuck, Shanghai. I don't care. Just give it to him and let him, he'll get out of office maybe. 
Yeah. That's know. all he's really looking for. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, uh, you know, there are quite a few conflicts of interest that Trump has regarding China. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as he does in a number of different places, but, uh, yeah. he's He's been trying to get hotels in China for a long time. Back in 2008, mm. there was a deal for an office complex that never quite uh, came through. Then there was another one in 2012. He tried to do a deal with the electricity utility, the State Grid Corporation of China, to develop property in Beijing. That fell apart, um, partly because the state grid was found to have been illegally using public land for the project. And they were like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's China. We don't care. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then in October 2016, the Chinese media quoted Trump's hotel CEO, Eric Dangzinger, telling people at a hospitality conference in Hong Kong that uh, they were going to open Trump hotels in 20 to 30 Chinese cities, <coughs> as well as Scion, the brand that Trump's sons run, right? Uh, opening hotels in other cities. So yes. at the end of the day, I think that's what the whole China trade war thing is about. He's just trying to negotiate. Right. Uh, opening hotels in China. Yeah, well, like that's, that's all. He, like you building the family, it, building a family business. Right. Well, yeah, they're also building their reputation. But it's like you said, every four years, whatever American president's got to run for re-election, Xi Jinping doesn't have that issue. We'll see who can last longer. Hmm. But getting back to the IP thing, yes. uh, yeah. Look, I think a lot of that has to do with Chinese culture, socialist slash communist culture of you know anyone who knows anything about communism knows that in in marxist theory in a mature communist country uh, there is no private property and ip is a particularly bizarre form of private property because it's not even property right it's just an idea that people say well i own this idea now You've got to keep in mind that for Chinese people that have been living under, particularly Mao for generations, mm -hmm. uh, they've been indoctrinated with a socialist slash communist view of private property in general as being something that needs to be phased out. Uh, so IP is not going to be high on the list of things that they give a shit about right. if you've been... Like, it reminds me of the story that um, an Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginal, Indigenous Australian friend of mine told me quite a few years ago. I used to do a podcast with an, an Ab Aboriginal guy. And he was saying, uh, you know, back in the 70s when the government in Australia started to get a little bit more humane with their treatment mm -hmm. of Aboriginals just after they got the vote, they would go out to some of the... Uh, villages, camps where Aboriginals lived in the outback and build houses for them. Mm. And but they would then they would make them sign like a an agreement right. that some of their welfare check, their social security check, um, would be would go towards paying off the house over a period of time. And they go, okay, yeah, sign here, okay, sign here, thanks very much. Boom, go away. The guy would come back, like the inspectors would go out every year to check up on the the houses, mm -hmm. uh, how they were doing. 
they'd come back and the houses would be, you know, trashed. Um, the door would have been taken off and, and burnt. Wow. And he'd be like, what happened to your house? And they go, well, we burned it, mate. And he, Why? He goes, well, we don't, we don't live there. We move around. We, we don't. Yeah. They, he was explained to me that th- these people, the, the Indigenous Australians who have not assimilated into white society for generations, mm-hmm. don't have the concept of, A, property like we have. They have no concept ah, of private property. Right. They, every, everything in the village belongs to everyone in the village. Uh, and B, they don't live in a house and stay in one spot. Nomads. They're, they're, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're nomadic, they're mobile, they get around. Um, so other people come to the house and just use it and do whatever they want when they move on, right. that kind of stuff. And they were, he, and he said, like, there were these inspectors who go, but you signed a contract. And they're like, what well, the fuck's I, that? Like, I just <laughs> made a mark. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah, what? Someone said right here, I wrote. They, they, so it's these massive gaps in in cultural appreciation just because mm-hmm. we see the importance of ip because it's been indoctrinated in us right. for generations uh and even then you know australians uh, uh famous for pirating game of thrones <laughs> you know what they should have done if they didn't want australia to pirate game of thrones they should have played the last season right. first ah. and then nobody would have ever pirated any game <laughs> Trust me, everyone oh would. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So, like, you know, even in the West, after generations of indoctrination around IP, we still copy stuff. We still go, well, really, that's not really real IP protection. Like, uh, you know, we're just downloading a show or downloading a book or downloading a song, downloading a movie. It's, it's, it's not really real stealing because <laughs> you've already made it. You've already made your money yeah, out of it. yeah. Um, really, really it, it, If I go to a bookstore and buy a book and then I read it, I can then give it to my friend yeah. and say, hey, read this. It's a great book. No one complains. Right. Same thing. Somebody has bought a movie, ripped it. Now they're giving me that movie. Same deal, yeah. man. Really? When you get down to it, <clears throat> somebody's got something and they're sharing it with me. It's perception. Like, so anyway, right. it's... It's, it's complicated even for us in the West, right. let alone for people that, that grew up under Mao Zedong. Um, but that said, they are making a, a ton of progress on it. And yes, it's not perfect, but no is perfect. You know, America's stealing Cuba's IP. So, Americans hey. and Australians are stealing our own IP. <laughs> so, you know, pointing the finger at China. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, I know Trump's playing hardball because he wants to get his hotels. But it's disrespectful and insulting, and really, yeah, eh, I don't think Xi Jinping is uh, worried, losing sleep, worried. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I don't think so. Now, as I said in the last episode, the imbalance of trade in goods between China and the U.S. is a natural outcome of voluntary choices that American mm-hmm. manufacturers have made over the last 40, 50 years right. to outsource. Their manufacturing to the U.S. in order to, uh, sorry, to China, in order to make more profit, which they can then hide in offshore tax havens. Mm-hmm. From the early 1980s to the early 1990s, the U.S. ran a surplus in its trade with China. 
That changed in 1992 Ooh. when China began to run in surplus. Right. And that's just continued to grow. So this isn't a new thing, the trade surplus that China has. It's been going for nearly 30 years. Right. It just keeps getting bigger every year. According to the US Census, China's trade with the United States was only $7.7 billion in 1985. Mm-hmm. By the way, do you know who the US runs a trade surplus with? Uh, Australia. Are y'all bitching about it? Our, no, okay. we're not bitching about it, at least not in public. <laughs> and, and the, your trade surplus with us was nearly $30 billion last year. Damn. You don't hear Australia's government getting up and throwing insults at the US about it right. and accusing them of a trade war. You know, you, you buy our Hollywood actors right. and then we buy the films and TV shows that you put them in. Yeah. Actually, we, 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 tor- we torrent them, really. But still, yeah. in theory, <laughs> right. Right. It'll, work, it'll works out. Right. We, we, I think the deal is we're happy to run at a $30 billion trade deficit if you just keep Russell Crowe over there. Keep Russell Crowe and Mel Gibson over there. That's a fair trade. And it's 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 worth thirty yeah. million dollars a year. <laughs> Easy. Get them Easy. the fuck get them off our shore. <laughs> uh. Yeah, it sounds fair. So I just want to. Uh, how about we just summarize? We, you want to wrap up? You done? I'm done. More yes. or less. Okay. I just want to talk about the communist thing again because I've been reading this week um, a book. Uh, that I've been meaning to read for a long time, but I'm just getting around to it. Um, mm-hmm. The book is... Where is it? The Rise and Fall of Communism by Archie Brown. Oh, I like that. Really good book if you want to have a good, uh, fairly balanced perspective of the history of communism. Mm-hmm. Archie Brown is a British political scientist and historian... Uh, emeritus professor of politics at the University of Oxford. Uh, he's been an expert in sort of Soviet and Russian communist politics, Cold War, right. that kind of stuff. We should try and get him on the show, except he's pretty fucking old. He's born in 1938. Damn. Uh, good for him. Yeah. But so he's very, very good. And it's, I'm enjoying the book so far anyway. I'm sort of, I don't know, a third of the way through it. It seems fairly balanced. I mean, he's not a, certainly not a fan. Of, right. I would say, communism and certainly not a fan of Lenin or Stalin, but he's he's pretty even-handed, I think, so Good. far. Right. I haven't got up to China or Vietnam or Cuba yet, uh, which will be a test, but sure. or Korea. But he's he's pretty balanced in talking about uh, the, the, you know, based on my understanding of communism, he's, he's treating it fairly even-handedly, pointing out so, a lot of the terrific progress that... Russia made under the communists, mm-hmm. even under Stalin, massive right. progress. Yes, and he gives he, he gives Stalin credit for his five year plans uh, in the in the early thirties, uh, saying that whilst yes, a lot of really really negative stuff impacts came out of it. Mm-hmm. If he hadn't have done that, they would have been so much further behind by the time the Germans attacked in nineteen forty one that they would have had no hope. True. At least by the at least by the time Germany attacked, they had Russia had the uh, yeah they didn't have any generals because Stalin had killed them all, but they had the ability to uh, get into heavy manufacturing Absolutely. and produce 
like 20,000 tanks a week or whatever it was that they started churning out. Better tanks. And he said if if Stalin hadn't, hadn't, you know, pushed them to do that, they would have been completely fucked. And it wouldn't have just been 20 million Russians had died. It would have been 100 million Russians died. So, again, you know, that gets me back to the consequentialism of Stalin's approach and all this kind of stuff. But But the thing I wanted to point talk about is something that I hadn't heard until I read this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're familiar with Lenin's um, new economic program, the NEP? We talked about it earlier in our Cold War show. Vaguely. Remind me. So, so uh, well, after the Russian Revolution in 1917, mm-hmm. uh, they made massive and, and rapid economic reform as uh, communist parties tended to do after their revolutions. You know, complete um, agrarian reform. Right. You know, handing handing all of the 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 getting rid of private land ownership and all this kind of stuff. Um, and like everywhere else, when they did it, it, it created massive disasters, administrative disasters. Production went down. Famine kicked in. No one knew what the fuck was what? going on. So after a couple of years of that, Lenin came up with the new economic program, and he was like, okay. Okay, this we, we moved too quickly. We fucked it up. Right. I'm sorry. My bad. Mayor Culpa. Uh, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to reintroduce elements of uh, private property, a little bit of free market. Um, the, I think the plan was that the party would, or the Sovnarkom anyway, the, the government slash party, would control what they would call the commanding heights of the economy. Mm-hmm. So the... The, the the big end of town, like in China. So the like in terms of the big banks, really big industrial manufacturing, that sort of stuff. We're going to manage that, but we're going to allow some free markets and private property property mm. profiteering down in the the smaller end of town. Yeah. So you can run your own thing, and there's right. not going to be centralized planning because we just can't handle it. Quite honestly, you, you need to right. do that. What I didn't understand, and then unfortunately Lenin died. Not, he had his strokes and he died and the whole thing went to um, hell in a handbasket mm-hmm. and got shut down. But what I didn't understand until I read Archie Brown's book, and apparently this only came to light um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union oh. and, um, and, and uh, some of the correspondence was made available, is Lenin's plan at the time was to, to run this new economic program for decades. Ah. He thought they needed decades of building up the productive forces before they could go back to more socialism and eventually move towards communism. He was going to pull a Deng Xiaoping before Deng Xiaoping. He was going to pull a Deng Xiaoping. Exactly, yeah. Nice. So when people, you know, say, well, that's not communism to introduce free market. Well, Lenin thought it was communism, so... Good enough for me. Good enough for him. Yeah, um, so, I, I mean, I knew about the NEPs, but I, I, I never realised that uh, Lenin's view was, yeah, okay, we're going to have to do Listen this for 30, 40, 50 years right. until we can get to the next level. Yeah. By the way, it was also, according to Archie Brown, it was also Lenin who uh, introduced the division of socialism first and communism later. Marx referred to it as, uh, I think, early communism and late communism. Gotcha. Again, the the slow progression from advanced capitalism through to communism. And it was really Lenin that called the two stages 
socialism and communism, and he called it socialism. Well, uh, yeah, apparently um, they didn't like the term socialism. Uh, they called themselves the communist party because socialism had a lot of negative connotation mm-hmm. based on earlier utopian socialist experiments and right. that kind of stuff. But anyway, he says in the book, uh, none of these communist countries would have called their con- their their economies communist. They would have called them socialist because they knew that communism was the the final right down the road uh, phase. Yeah. yeah, which they we we had no state, uh, no political machinery, which Archie Brown says is completely utopian fantasy land. You have to have some kind of institutions to. Yeah make sure that you don't have any need for institutions. So how that works, no one knows. It's one of the problems is figuring out the nitty-gritties. Chicken in the egg. Um, as I've said before, Marx, Marx never really tried to go there. He was like, look, yeah. it's going it's to be different different places at different times. Right. So you, you, you work out the details. All I'm talking about is we need to get to a better place. It's really, you know, Marx is really uh, moral philosophy. It's not really political uh, strategy I think although the two are probably connected right it's really moral philosophy about look there's, we, there's got to be a better way to live yeah like Adam Smith himself was I was just writing this in the last draft of my book last night Adam Smith the invisible hand all those sorts of things he was a moral philosopher people forget that he wasn't an economist ah Adam Smith was a moral philosopher and in fact you can't read his uh, book on the, the, the invisible hand stuff. The Wealth of Nations and the Theory of Moral Sentiments. Now, The Wealth of Nations is the one that people always talk about, right. particularly in the US. But his earlier book is The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and that's where he introduces the concept of the invisible hand. Mm. C- concept of the invisible hand, his analogy, it's... I think he's talking about a landowner, and he basically says that if the landowner is trying to get himself rich... Uh, by doing that, he's making things better for everybody else mm. uh, because it's sort of this trickle-down effect of his efforts. So we should get out of his way and, and let him do what he needs to do because there will be trickle-down effects for everyone, which is kind of Ayn Rand's uh, premise for, in obje- for objectivism in The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged and those sorts of things. But Adam Smith, in his earlier book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, is where he introduced the invisible hand, mm-hmm. says, but that only works if the landlord is a very moral and ethical person. <laughs> like Trump. So it all falls down when you have psychopaths right. involved because huh. they're like, Good connection. fuck you, I'm yeah. not spreading the wealth, I'm putting it in an offshore tax haven. <laughs> so the invisible hand... Yeah. Falls apart when you have reality psychopaths. Oh, right when it's psychopaths' hands, yeah. So all of these things, as people go, well, you know, communism's fine in theory, but how do you? you know, yeah. go, well, it's the same thing with capitalism. It's so fine all connected. In theory. Yeah. yeah, but you know, when it actually gets to implementing, it's a lot more difficult than right. it seems. Right. Anyway, but so we should. Oh, sorry. So it's hard. We shouldn't do it. No. Right. We should work out how to get there. Anyway, getting back to China. So we how to get there. Commun. <laughs> Some people. Hold on. Oh, okay. <sighs> Getting worked up. Bring it down a couple of notches, Cam. There you go. Chris, as Chrissy said to me the other day, you are the last fucking person that ever needs to be on coke. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Okay, so I want to just finish up with this, the communist-socialist thing, because this is the thing where a lot of people stumble when it comes to China. 
People like to say China's really a capitalist country now, masquerading as communist. Mm -hmm. Um, We hear it get referred to as state capitalism, what they do. I think a lot of this, though, is Americans uh, refusing to accept the fact that China has done this as a communist country. Right. Americans can't, can't, can't accept that, can't conceive of that, can't concede that. So they have to say, no, 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 it's state capitalism. It's a bit like Christians going, well, maybe the Big Bang happened, but God created it. Yeah, he let it. Or, okay, maybe there's so much proof for evolution that we have to accept it, but God created evolution. His hands on the tiller. Yeah. 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 It's it's, uh, the inability to just let go. Yeah. Um, But here's the thing I want to point out is that in order for China to get here in the first place, we give credit to Deng Xiaoping, but we have to give credit to Mao. For all of the bad stuff mm-hmm. that happened as a result of the revolution and the, the cultural revolution, uh, Mao got them their independence in the first place. It's true. Without Mao, right. the Chinese would probably still be under the thumb of the British or the Americans, mm-hmm. probably the Americans after World War II. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and to be fair, and I think I've mentioned this earlier in the show, Chiang Kai-shek and Sun Yat-sen, the founder of the Kuomintang, were both socialists Mm -hmm. and anti-imperialists and may have accomplished the right thing. Uh, Well, the same thing, I mean. They may have accomplished the same sort of It would have been more appealing or acceptable to the Americans, maybe. 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 We don't, we don't know right. how that would have played out. You know, if, if Chiang Kai-shek had won the Civil War, he might have turned around and told America to go fuck themselves mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, created an independent socialist country. Or a monarchy. But they, fuck. Who knows? Go who on. knows? Yeah. We, yeah, we don't know. It's like somebody said to me the other day uh, in Facebook arguing about, uh, or in an email, no, I think it was in an email, Somebody's arguing with me about Abraham Lincoln versus Kim Il-sung and uh, how it's okay for Abraham Lincoln to start a civil war and invade the South. He's white. Uh, Sorry, Because he ahead. was white, yeah. <laughs> Not okay for Kim. He said, because look at what happened. I mean, it all, all turned out great for America. Uh, no <laughs> slavery. Um, turned out really bad for the Koreans. Look at North Koreans. Look at uh, how they live. You go, yeah, but what would have happened if if the US had stayed out of it and Kim had been allowed to unify Korea without having to have a protracted war for several years in which millions of people died yeah. and created generational bad blood between the North and the South and then they got landlocked and they had to do deals to survive and they got sanctioned and all this kind of stuff. And if it had been allowed to happen, who knows? What would have happened? It could be another Singapore. Now, we don't know what right. would have happened if it had played out in a different way. So it's it's ridiculous to say, well, you know, it, it would have been worse off and this or that or the other. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm going to point this out again for those of you trying to argue with me over Abraham Lincoln and Ray as a, as a Southerner. You can feel, feel free to weigh in here. I can't remember which show I got into this on. Right. But... It, was, it would have been the Korean show, right? Probably. Yeah, I think so. Here's, here's the thing for those of you who are listening to the Cold War show. I've had to explain this to several people on... Uh, I think I, I did a throwaway 
offhand comment on the show the other day where I said Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, started the war because he launched an attack on Fort Sumter. People said, no, it was the South that attacked Fort Sumter. Here's my perspective. Right. South Carolina seceded from the Union. Yes. Uh, late. 1860, early 1861. They said they issued their articles, their declaration of secession. Mm. Fuck you, we're (laughs) out of (laughs) here. Fort Sumter was occupied by the US Army. Mm -hmm. South Carolina said, get the fuck out of our fort, you're on our land. Right. They said, fuck you, we're not moving. True. Um, The South Carolina said, no, get the fuck out. They said, no, fuck you. Then, when Lincoln was sworn in, which I think was March 1861, Buchanan didn't do anything. Buchanan was like, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to ride this you know, out. Let yeah. him secede. Right. Fuck I, him. I don't give a shit. Yeah. yeah. Was, he for, was, he, was he a Southerner? I think he was a Southerner, Buchanan, wasn't he? Uh, I don't know. He was, he was an asshole, but I honestly can't remember. <laughs> he really well, he was bad at his job. Go ahead. Was he Trump level? People go, Trump's the worst president we've ever had. I'm like, really? Really? You think so? Uh, he know. was, uh, he's from Pennsylvania. So no, yeah. wasn't a Southern. That's not Southern, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. And, and you just pissed no. off everybody in that state. <laughs> but that's fine. Please continue. <laughs> I knew that. I was kidding. Um, Lincoln, Lincoln gets sworn in and basically sends reinforcements to right. the U.S. Army at Fort Sumter. So... Uh, he's basically attacking South Carolina by trying to reinforce troops on their land. Now, people say, well, they didn't have the right to secede. I'm like, really? They had the right to join the Union, but not the right to leave the Union? What kind of oppression is that, bitch? Like, you can can join our club, but you ain't never... What is it, the Hotel California? Is that what America is? You can join any time you like, but you can never leave? What the fuck is up with that shit? No. That doesn't seem very, uh, you know, freedom. What happened to hashtag freedom? (laughs) Or me too. No, I remember my college professor saying, in his opinion, most of the states wouldn't have joined if if they didn't think they could get out if they wanted to or needed to. Good yeah, good point. Yeah. And so, you know, basically the analogy that I used on Facebook this week is like, it's like, uh, you know, you, you're in my house. You're mm-hmm. in a room of my house. I'm asking you to get out of the room in my house. You're telling me to go fuck myself. And then you ring a bunch of your mates. Right. 20 of your mates turn up armed with <laughs> rifles. Right. And I, and, I th- and then before they can get there, yes. I actually grab you by the neck, put a gun to your head and kick you out of my house. Did I launch an attack on you? No. You refused to get out of my house and called your thug mates right. to come and defend you. No, it's my house. You say, well, you, you, sorry, you, it's not your house. Uh, well, I disagree. So anyway. Right. I know Americans struggle to deal with facts. You're not a very fact-based peoples, but them there's the facts. <laughs> Yeah, at least the people. See, I've been I've been to North Carolina now, right? You know, and uh, so hopefully, yeah, the Carolinans like me. If the rest of Americans hate me, I bet they do right now, this moment. Yes, yes. I'm just saying that because I want them to. I want I want to. I want them to give me like a model of the General Lee to drive around. <laughs> yeah, that damn Australian's right. He knows what he's talking about. Shoot. 
Yeah. Get get Chrissy to dress up in some Daisy Dukes and tie a little thing Hold around on. her. And I'm going to need a moment. <laughs> Where was I? Where was I doing something? Socialism. Right. Okay. Oh, yes. Fuck. Jesus Christ. This is only hour Ooh. one, two, and going off. That's hour 23. Jesus Christ, I've got a book to finish. <clears throat> okay, let me let me wrap up really quickly. Stop interrupting me, Ray. Stop fucking Stop. sidetracking. I apologise. So the lack of Chinese sovereignty um, over their political and economic uh, uh, situation is what held them back primarily during the 19th uh, and early 20th centuries. Uh, uh, they had the monarchy, and then, then they mm-hmm. had they had the British gunboat diplomacy, the Opium Wars. They suffered from unequal treaties from 1860 to 1943. Uh, their their century of humiliation, as they refer to it, too. Yeah. So they didn't regain their full sovereignty until after World War Two and the Civil War. So Mao is important in the whole scheme of things. You, you had to have Mao. Absolutely to break the hold over the Chinese that the monarchy and the imperialists had, which had kept the Chinese people down. Then Mao Mm -hmm. followed a Stalin-style central command model for the economy, which didn't work for a bunch of reasons. I mean, like, it worked in some ways, don't get me wrong. There were some... There were some bright spots there, you know, in terms of literacy rates, as there was in Russia and, and the Ukraine. Literacy rates went from, like... Nothing uh, to 70, 80% education literacy wow. in, in China and Russia very quickly once the communists took over. Yeah. Um, the, the, I know uh, in Russia, reading Archie Brown's book, like the, the liberation of women, women joined the workforce, mm-hmm. um, you know, all sorts of equality things were pushed through, et cetera. So there was some progress, but also a lot of, lot of uh, uh, shit went bad when right. Mao tried to run a centrally planned economy. As I've said before, you can put some of that down to autocrats, if you like, guys who didn't know what they were doing. Obviously, no one had ever done this before successfully, as I like to point out. So there was no, it wasn't mm-hmm. like 200 years of testing and trial and error that they could right. go and read the book on. They were trying to work it out. You've got a massive population, <clears throat> illiterate, unskilled, uneducated. You didn't have computers. You didn't have mobile phones. You didn't have, they didn't even have fucking roads uh, or, yeah. or train lines or any yeah. of this sort of stuff that you need to move goods and information around really quickly. A complete lack of infrastructure in the country to run anything close to a modern economy. We're talking 1950 here in China. America got roads, everyone's got a car, yeah. telephones, television, radio, all this. China's trying to do it with, uh, you know, uh, tying notes to the fucking legs of... of, of owls and throwing them out the window <laughs> very hard to run a centralized economy at the best of times let alone right. using owl owl mail owl technology um, right yeah so look there was a lot of reasons why this failed people people tend to uh, uh, oversimplify it and go well as just you know dumb commies well okay you can point the finger at them for a bit of it but there's a lot of problems with doing this and as i pointed out before america couldn't fucking avoid a massive famine and depression in the 1930s with all of its advantages and levels right. of education, literacy and infrastructure. So running big, big economies is not as fucking easy as it looks. 
yeah. but particularly if you have a, a population that's massive and uneducated and illiterate and unskilled. Yeah, so beginning in 1978, Deng Xiaoping led a major rethink about how to rebuild their economy. The idea was to introduce a limited form of free market, tightly controlled by the state. He referred to it as a socialist market economy. Mm. The socialist market economy represents a preliminary or primary stage of developing socialism, according to Deng Xiaoping. It does not matter whether the cat is white or black as long as it catches mice, was one of his favourite sayings. And the other was, to be rich is glorious. Now imagine that. Imagine (laughs) after... Oh my God, he should have been shot. 30 years of Maoism for him to be saying to be rich is glorious. That must have rattled people to the core. And this is one of the reasons why Mao had... Uh, you know, put a lot of guys uh, in in prison in the later stages of his careers because they were starting to say, you know what, we need to we need to make some money uh, as a country. We need yeah, to make some money. Yeah. It's like money capitalist, yeah. away with you. Re-educated. Here's how China's Ministry of Commerce puts it on their website for people that are confused. This is how the Chinese Ministry of Commerce sees it. The development Mm. of the economic system with public ownership playing a dominant role and diverse forms of ownership developing side by side is a basic characteristic of the socialist economic system at the preliminary stage. Mm. This is decided by the quality of socialism and the national situation in preliminary stage. First, China, as a socialist country, should persist in public ownership as the basis of the socialist economy. Second, China, as in its preliminary stage, should develop diverse forms of ownership on condition that the public ownership plays a dominant role. Third, all forms of ownership compliant with three represents are serving socialism. I'll get Mm. to three represents uh, in a second. So some people say it's not really communist. Uh, but that's the way that China views it. Preliminary right. stages of socialism, diverse forms of ownership, developing side by side with public ownership as the dominant form. Communism is the goal. Socialism is the intermediary stage. But to do socialism properly, you have to have a productive, educated, literate, skilled Middle-class society. That's always been the view. That's That was the view right, of Marx and Engels. Mm-hmm. That was the view of Lenin, you know, in his later years when he was introducing the NEP. Um, you know, Stalin thought he could do it just by, you know, building the world's greatest mustache and staring really right. hard at people. Um, Mao tried that as well without the mustache. Right. Deng just got back to Basics. what Lenin yeah. and Marx and Engels believed, right? He yeah. was going back, Brilliant. back to the future. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the, uh, the three represents I don't have time to get into that um, I will talk about though the, uh, 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 the four cardinal principles of Deng Xiaoping theory I'm not sure if we've talked about that the mm-hmm. Communist Party must uphold the four cardinal principles and they are one, the basic spirit of communism mm-hmm. which is we want to get to a point where there's complete freedom, there's complete public ownership of the means of production, and there's no state, basically. Right. Two, the political system of the PRC, known as the People's Democratic Dictatorship, which means basically that the the people are in control of the country. Mm. Three, the leadership of the Communist Party, 
and for Marxism Leninism, Marxism Leninism, mm-hmm. and Mao Zedong thought. Right. Combination so, of the two. Yeah. So to them, clearly, this is their communism, how they see it, and for us to just try to ignore their own very definitions and go, oh, that's bullcrap, it's capitalism, is not someone who's ex- who's looking hard enough at the reality of what China is today and what they're holding on to as a nation. Now, we can sit here and call bullshit on all of that. We can say it's all a farce. Right. Oh, they're really just secretly greedy fucking capitalists. Yeah, used car sales. Yeah. They're pretending that it's this or that. And you might be right. Maybe it's a hoax. Maybe it's not. You can't know that for certain. For sure. Right. Just as I can't know that it's not for certain. We don't know. We're going to have to see how it plays out. Right. All we know, here's the thing that we know, is we've got to take China's experiment seriously, and I think we have to give it a massive amount of respect and acknowledgement. They have achieved, as, as fucking Charlie Munger said, they've achieved historically amazing things in an incredibly short period of time. Right. Yes, they're doing it on the backs of capitalism, but capitalism did it on the back of slavery, so, um, or yeah. and, and the imperialists did it on the back of global conquest and genocide. Everyone does it off the backs of something, so right. that's beside the point. Everyone just builds on what's come before. Yeah, and yes, it comes with consequences. Uh, there's been some oppression. There's uh, the wealth isn't distributed equally, but. Neither is it distributed equally in the West. Not even in close. fact, it's getting worse yes. in the West. Yes. Back in back in 1929, the top 1% of the United States uh, income earners had about 8% of the income share. Today, the top 1% has something like 20% of the income share. Jesus. So the wealth inequality in America isn't getting better, it's getting worse. Right. So uh up. yeah. Before before you can criticize China's wealth inequality, you need to you know look. We need to look at our own countries. I don't know what how much Australia's one percent owns, but I do know you know our CEOs, our top Qantas CEO here just took home a twenty four million dollar pay packet. Ridiculous. Right. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to finish with a quote from Yukon Huang's book. Uh, what did they say it was called? The Chinese Conundrum, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, cracking the China conundrum. Here's a quote that I thought was good. I'll, just, I'll close out with this and I'll shut the fuck up. Both the Washington and Beijing versions of capitalism have produced impressive results but fallen short in specific aspects. The American system may in principle seem preferable, but the Chinese system in practice appears to be doing a better job preparing for the future. China is putting its money into infrastructure, education and renewable energy to become more competitive. At the same time, the United States is putting too much into consumption, wasteful health services and the military, compromising its future growth. America's brand of capitalism has generated exceptional innovation, but its inability to forge a collective view because of the primacy accorded to individual rights and vested interests has prevented the country from addressing long-term needs. Its political process is often mired in ideological debates and personalities rather than actions. In contrast, China has shown a knack for forging collective solutions that have enhanced the welfare of hundreds of millions, 
but often at the cost of individual rights. China's approach is often seen as being more pragmatic, but whether it can provide the flexibility to spur innovation and satisfy personal aspirations is uncertain. It still falls far short compared with the United States, largely because of the latter's far more advanced institutional and human capital base. China uses capitalism primarily as a means to achieve its objectives, not because it truly embraces its underlying beliefs. Oh, my beer. I am eligible. It's all relative. Do you love me? It's a good kisser, by the way. I, I, I applaud you, sir. <laughs>